Thanks be to God. Well, good to see you today. Welcome to Solid Rock. If you're new or visiting, we're happy to have you join us for worship today. Two weeks ago, we, uh, by the way, this shirt is a paid advertisement. I am receiving compensation for this. At least that's my understanding. I'm not sure who it's coming from, but no, I will take any opportunity to wear a t-shirt. So I was asked and I conceded. Two weeks ago, though, we concluded the Easter season on Pentecost Sunday, which means now we have entered into a season that isn't really much of a season per se. There isn't a specific part of the redemption story we are celebrating. It's just this long period of time that lasts until Advent, a period of time that is ingeniously, creatively referred to as the season after Pentecost, or it's also just referred to as ordinary time, which sounds pretty mundane. Yes, ordinary. It sounds like it's not exciting at all, but perhaps there is something uniquely important about this season, at least in the fact that it is a reminder that ordinary life, what feels like a slog, what feels monotonous and lacks excitement, ordinary life is itself holy. A pastor I know recently made this comment. He said, I like ordinary time. Speaking of this season on the church calendar, I like ordinary time. We don't need to try and spice it up with other names or make it seem less ordinary. He went on, every season of life isn't extraordinary. Every day isn't exceptional. Ordinary days are still Christ's. Every season of life isn't extraordinary. Every day isn't exceptional, but the ordinary still belongs to Christ. I don't know about you, but that resonates with me, at least in part, I think, because I often feel the impulse to hope for and desire the extraordinary. I I want the exceptional because ordinary is rather boring. I think many would agree. Nobody wants to be basic. Please correct me if I've used that cultural slang wrong. Is that, is that right? I've only recently learned that that is a thing. And so I'm trying to stay hit by incorporating that into my patterns of speech. So very few naturally are satisfied with the ordinary. Our small group is reading a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Harrison Worson. I actually think several small groups have read that or are in the process of reading that book together. Um, And I want to return to something else she said later in our time this morning, but near the beginning of that book, she comments on a sign that she once saw hanging on the wall in a new monastic Christian community house that she was familiar with, a sign that read, Everyone wants a revolution. No one wants to do the dishes. Everyone wants a revolution. No one wants to do the dishes. I know I certainly don't. In today's Old Testament reading, we're actually going to be spending the next two weeks going through this story, but in today's Old Testament reading, we see something of this sort where one of the most popular and one of the most important Hebrew prophets deals with some of the unpleasant ordinariness of life after having just experienced the extraordinary, 
has an exceptional day, an extraordinary victory, but then the descent from the extraordinary makes him want to quit. And I think there are some things that we can glean from this story, and we're going to spend the next two weeks doing that. So we are in the book of First Kings this morning, a book that details Israel's monarchy following the death of King David. Remember, King Solomon follows David, and Solomon rules Israel for 40 years and really leads to unprecedented wealth and success for the kingdom. Israel has, in many ways, finally arrived at the pinnacle of her glory. This is sort of the golden age. However, maybe things weren't as great as they appeared on the surface. First of all, because for all of the surface-level success that Solomon experienced, there were a lot of dark undercurrents at work under his rule. Secondly, following the death of King Solomon the kingdom begins to splinter. It divides into two, which is at least seems to be an indication that maybe Solomon's leadership didn't set things up for success after he was off the scene. The kingdom divides. You have Israel to the north and Judah to the south, and each of those kingdoms throughout the coming years have many kings. Some of those kings rule justly and keep the people of God close to the heart of Yahweh, but most of them don't. Most of the kings aren't admirable or just at all. Um, most of them are not God-fearing, and today we're going to consider one of those kings. We're going to read about an interaction between the famous prophet Elijah and one of those unjust, unrighteous kings, a man named King Ahab whose story actually begins back at the end of 1 Kings chapter 16. And when we're introduced to King Ahab, we quickly discover what kind of king he is going to be. We're, I think this is like the second sentence after King Ahab is introduced. We are told he did evil in the sight of the Lord. But the author doesn't leave it at that. He goes on to say, more than all who were before him. So this is the type of king we're dealing with here. One thing Ahab is remembered for, you may remember this, is the introduction of Baal worship into Israel, which presents obvious problems for this monotheistic people who believe that Yahweh is the one and only true God, and they have been commanded by God to worship and serve him only. So obviously, the introduction of Baal worship is going to lead to some sort of conflict and it actually doesn't take us long to get to that conflict. The very next chapter, this begins to develop. You may remember that conflict culminates eventually on Mount Carmel, where God is revealed to be not only superior to Baal, but is also shown to be the only God with any sort of power at all. So we see this developing, and by the time we get to chapter 18, we find Elijah, the prophet of God's people, who is instructed by God to confront King Ahab for the introduction of Baal worship in Israel and all of the unfaithfulness that that led to. And Maybe you remember what happens in that story. King Ahab gathers all of the 450 prophets of Baal and 
Elijah says to the people of Israel who have gathered together, look, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. We're, we're not forcing you to follow Yahweh, but you need to make a choice. At some, you can't have it both ways. At some point, you have to make a decision. And then this showdown begins. They gather two bulls, and bulls with horns, not bulls that you eat ramen out of. I'm working on enunciation. They gather two bulls, and Elijah says, whichever God sends fire to consume their bull, that God is real. So it's a pretty cut and dry scenario, pretty simple. Whichever God sends fire to consume the bull, that God is real. So the prophets of Baal take their bull, they place it on the wood, and they begin calling on Baal, praying for, for Baal to send fire to consume the bull. And they even are worked into this frenzy and begin cutting themselves. And it is absolute pandemonium. And it goes on for hours and hours. And nothing happens. There's no fire. No voice. There's no response at all, even to the point where... Elijah, maybe we would call him immature for this, but he even begins to, to mock the prophets of Baal for this, th these expressions. E Elijah then takes his bull, places it on the wood, but he goes a step further and douses the bull with water, and he does this three times, just so in the event that it is set on fire, everybody would know that this must be a divine action. And then in verse 36, he prays, saying, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I, I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. If you continue reading, this is what takes place. This power encounter on Mount Carmel turns the people back to Yahweh, at least momentarily. It is an extraordinary victory. It's an exceptional day for Elijah, which is then capped off when Elijah kills the 450 prophets of Baal, which is a rather unpleasant part of the story, but it's there, so we need to not just brush that under the rug. But... But that execution of the, the 450 prophets of Baal isn't the end of the story. We get to our text today from 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So we're introduced here to a woman named Jezebel. If you grew up in Pentecostal circles, you are probably very familiar with this woman, but that's a story for a different day. We won't go down that path. Ahab had married this woman named Jezebel, a woman from Sidon who actually did prove to be quite violent. She was instrumental in killing multiple prophets of Yahweh before Elijah, and 
Elijah knows about this. He knows her violent past, and quite naturally and understandably, he is afraid. He knows that she has all of the power of the kingdom at her disposal. She has a king who's rather passive and isn't going to confront her at all, and she has a violent past. She has shown that she's not above killing a prophet or two, so you add all of those things together, and it leads to a pretty volatile situation. She sends Elijah this message, if you aren't killed by tomorrow, like the prophets of Baal that you murdered, then I welcome the gods to kill me. In other words, so this is a pretty intense story. You might, if you have children in here, I guess it's too late to use the earmuffs because I've already read it, but sorry about that. We should have had a warning. In other words, she is saying to Elijah, your death is certain. I will have somebody do this. If, if I can't get anybody to do it, I'll carry it out myself. And Elijah hears this and hits the road. He's not sticking around. He's like Pac-Man following the yellow dots chased by the ghost. He's not going to stick around to see what happens. He knows her history. He knows her power. I'm not messing around here, he decides. In verse 4, we read this. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. So Elijah heads south as far as he can go in the promised land without leaving the promised land, and it's an exhausting journey. And by the time he makes it to his destination, he decides that he doesn't have the will to live anymore. This is a fascinating part of the story for a couple of reasons. First of all, Elijah's life has been in jeopardy before. He has been without water and without food. And time and time again, God proved to be his protector. God proved to be his miraculous sustainer, the, the faithful one he was serving. But in this instance, he doesn't seem to be able to trust that provision anymore. It's also interesting that Elijah flees to the south in order to save his life. But by the time he arrives, he's exhausted physically, emotionally, and mentally. And the purpose for his trip in the first place, which was to save his life, is abandoned. He says, just kill me now. I, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to be killed anyway, just like the prophets before me. This is no use. My, my efforts are pointless. My life is a waste. Keep in mind, this is all taking place not long after that exceptional, extraordinary victory on Mount Carmel. And here he is, ready to give it all up. But he was exhausted. He was terrified. He had just made this long, arduous journey and did it pretty quickly. This, this was not a time for rash hasty decisions where life and death were hanging in the balance. And as we continue reading the story, we actually find that as soon as he gets some sleep and as soon as he has some food in his belly, there's a rather dramatic change in his countenance. 
Verse 5, and he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked of, on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Now, to be clear, when we read Old Testament narrative, really when we read any narrative in Scripture, these stories aren't, aren't always normative. They're not always prescriptive. They're, they're not always giving us a positive example to emulate. And sometimes maybe there aren't many points of application that we can draw from the story. So I, I don't want to press this too far, but there does seem to be a fairly simple principle at work here that is rather ordinary and mundane. Principle that isn't exciting at all, and it's a simple fact of life that we all know, at least experientially, and that is that there are certain conditions, maybe internal conditions or external conditions, situations that we are faced with, there are certain conditions in which maybe it's not best to make some of those big decisions. It's difficult to think clearly when we are hungry, right? Or, or when we haven't slept well for several nights in a row, or when a stressful situation has rendered us emotionally and mentally exhausted. It's not easy to think clearly or make wise decisions under those circumstances. So perhaps there are moments in life where we should maybe put some of those critical decisions on hold for a moment until we've had a chance to take a nap under a broom tree or to get something into our bellies. Some of these ordinary, mundane aspects of life, taking a nap, getting rest, eating a good meal, these are not just the necessary but completely unspiritual parts of our lives. Those normal, average parts of life are incredibly spiritual in and of themselves, and even more, they impact every other spiritually significant aspect of our lives. We see that here in Elijah's example. But I think often we are trained by our culture not to care for the ordinary, because we're always looking ahead to the exceptional and the extraordinary, and this average day is just something I have to get through so I can get to this big moment that I've been anticipating. In an essay entitled, Life is a Miracle, Wendell Berry wrote something that I think in a way applies to what we're considering this morning. He said, it is easy for me to imagine that the next great division of the world will be between people who wish to live as creatures and people who wish to live as machines. So how I think this is potentially connected to what we're considering this morning, when we don't take time to care for our souls on the ordinary 
average day, we will never be prepared for the extraordinary or the exceptional. We, we live in a world where it seems as though we have to operate as machines rather than creatures. We have to go and go and go. It doesn't matter if we're not in a good place mentally or, or physically. We don't have time to stop and get some help. We don't have time to slow down and get some sleep or get a meal that wasn't handed to us through a window as we're eating in motion. Taking care of our, ourselves, taking care of our souls, taking care of ourselves physically and emotionally, these are spiritual parts of life. Now, I do want to offer some balance here because I'm not at all suggesting that self-care is elevated to this place of preeminence where every decision we make has to be run through the filter of whether or not this is going to be good for me. If we, if we go down that path, we will never be willing to live a sacrificial life. And we have been called as followers of Jesus to sacrifice greatly. So I don't want to suggest that self-care is elevated to this place of preeminence. I think that's a real danger in our age. It seems that the pendulum has swung pretty quickly to that opposite extreme. And it can be easy in the name of self-care to make an excuse to never sacrifice for the sake of somebody else. And as followers of Jesus, we, we just can't go down that path. What I'm hoping to suggest is the simple fact that the ordinary, the mundane, the, maybe we could say the secular or the physical moments of our lives are actually profoundly spiritual. Tish Harrison Warren, in the book I mentioned at the beginning of our time, said this. She said, the small bits of our days are profoundly meaningful because they are the site of our worship. I love this line. The crucible of our formation is in the monotony of our daily routines. Crucible of our formation is in the monotony of our daily routines. Those monotonous daily routines impact a great deal. So take a nap. Eat a good meal, preferably at least occasionally with something that grew out of the ground. The, those simple, ordinary acts might just bring the change in perspective that will give you strength and courage to keep moving forward. Let's continue reading. We have a lot to read, but we're not going to talk about it much. We'll pick some of this stuff up next week. But I want to read it before we leave today. Verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Now, I don't know if this mindset is just a result of that hugely successful showdown on Mount Carmel or what, but Elijah seems to be convinced nobody else understands like me. You, you get a little bit, 
you don't understand like me. It reminds me of Hot Rod. You don't party, I, I like to party. <laughs> that is an example of why I shouldn't go off script. <laughs> Nobody else is faithful like me. I'm the only one left who loves you and who is willing to truly serve you. We're, we're going to explore this idea more next week. That's going to be the focus of our time. But clearly, that's not entirely true. But I think sometimes success can do that to us. A success like the one Elijah experiences on Mount Carmel, that, that can lead to that attitude. It reminds me of a warning from Thomas Merton who said this. He said, if I had a message to my contemporaries, it is surely this. Be anything you like, but at all costs avoid one thing, success. If you are too obsessed with success, you will forget to live. If you have learned only how to be a success, your life has probably been wasted. If you're too obsessed with success, too obsessed with the extraordinary or the exceptional, you will forget to live in the ordinary average day, which makes up most of our lives. Let's continue reading before I assume a fetal position and cry. Thomas Merton has a way of doing that to me, so. <laughs> Verse 11. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And repeats the question, which makes me think there's a little bit of frustration in the question. And Elijah responds with the same words. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. So here Elijah is. We'll pick this up and talk about it in more detail next week. Here Elijah is on Mount Sinai. Earth, wind, and fire. Do you remember? <laughs> 21st day. Earth, keep going. I do have the voice of an angel, so. Earth, wind, and fire, these manifestations. I think it's the t-shirt that's leading to this. I don't know. These manifestations, God wasn't in the wind. God wasn't in the earthquake. God wasn't in the fire, but rather in that still, small voice, or we might understand it in this case, the absolute silence, the absolute silence that follows. That's where the story leads us to believe that God is present and acting in this moment. 
God is acting and speaking in the ordinary. After that dramatic, extraordinary victory on Mount Carmel, you would expect that Elijah is the kind of guy that only hears God in those sort of groundbreaking ways, especially now that he's Mount Sinai, where Moses met with God. But the wind, fire, and earthquake all come and go, and God was not found in those extraordinary signs. There are mountaintop experiences in this life. There are extraordinary days. There are exceptional seasons. But there are also a host of ordinary days. The vast majority of our lives, ordinary. Nothing special. Seemingly nothing spiritual at all. God is with us, working in us through it all. So we'll pick this up next week. I want to leave us with this thought. As we begin our journey through ordinary time this year, which will take us all the way to Advent, be reminded today, take care of who you are on the ordinary, average day. That's who you're becoming. Take care of who you are. On this ordinary, average day, that's who you are becoming. Kevin, if you want to come up. If you'd all stand. We are going to respond to what the Spirit of God might be speaking to our hearts through this wild story in 1 Kings 19. We're going to respond by coming to the table of our Lord where we find sustenance for our souls. We've talked a little bit this morning about some of those necessary aspects of taking care of ourselves physically, getting rest, eating a good meal. This meal, I believe, nourishes our souls. I don't know how, but as we meet with Jesus around his body and his blood, Jesus is sustaining us with his life. Come forward this morning. Receive the body and blood of Christ. Find the nourishment you need to keep going. By way of invitation, I want to say this prayer, and then we'll invite everybody to come forward. We'll make two lines down the center aisle. When you get to the front, somebody will speak the words over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord of all power and might, the author and giver of all good things, graft in our hearts the love of your name. Increase in us true religion. Nourish us with all goodness and bring forth in us the fruit of good works. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. And would you join us at the table of the Lord this morning? <laughs>